Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I am thrilled, you know, with the guests that we have today. You know, he he and his team, you know, they've built, you know, one of the biggest, you know, startup success that we've seen, you know, coming out of New York City. Uh, you know, I have a lot of respect, you know, for what they've done, for what the company has done. And, uh, and I think that we're going to be learning a lot about building, scaling, uh, you know, adjusting to whatever is in front of you with the markets. And uh, yeah, and all the good stuff that we love to hear. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Oliver Karas. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So so give us a little bit of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? So life growing up was uh, very much uh, shaped by my parents, I think, uh, like for many of us. In my case, I had two very strong personalities as parents. One was my mother, you know, German and a very bourgeois artistic family. One was my dad, who actually had been a social activist, had been captured by the Secret Service for his political activities, and they, they tortured him, and they broke one of his uh, bones in his uh, spinal cord. What did they capture him? And I guess, you know, out of, you know, that experience of um, of seeing your dad, too, you know, like going through that and and I mean, I, it takes leadership, you know, to 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 put yourself in in that situation too. And I'm sure that you learned quite a bit from that. And and look at you today, right? You know, quite a a leader in your in your own you know thing too. So so I guess, what did you get from that experience, from seeing your father going through that? I only experienced my dad ever with paralyzed arms, and that was uh, an incredible daily reminder of how much he had sacrificed, you know, to. In, in his fight. And he, he raised us with this belief that talent brings responsibility. So I grew up with an uber ego that always told me, Oliver, whatever I just did, what, however much I'd sacrificed, whatever you know, I'd achieved uh, to make the world uh, better, it wasn't, uh, wasn't good enough. And so I think every entrepreneur has some chip on their shoulder. Mine uh, ends up being that I want to live up to that example. And you know, in many ways, it made me uh, the leader that I am today, just because I was looking for something that can have a big impact on how the world works, that can uh, improve uh, many people's lives. And it's, uh, it's, I think, created an environment where other people who feel very similarly want to join me. And I always say, you know, like you can teach a turkey how to climb a tree, but you're much better uh, off hiring a squirrel. And Zokta is a company full of squirrels. Now, now let's 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 talk about you know starting companies too, because you know, right after, you know, um, literally, you know, being there and, and, and seeing what was going on, you know, you, you even started a company before going into med school. So, so what, what did you do there with that company? Well, you know, my dad had this philosophy that with 18, I'm on my own and I should uh, earn my own money. And so I started a pre-internet online company back in the day when emails took five days to get from Munich to Los Angeles. And yeah, I, I ran that uh, company uh, completely bootstrapped, uh, you know, for for profits and cash flow. And at some point, I saw the internet coming, and I knew I had to make a decision whether I, uh, you know, sort of drop out of college and make that company internet ready, or you know, sort of sell it before everyone else sees the internet coming. Also, I ended up deciding to sell it. I was like in the early early nineties before AOL sent out all these 
CDs for the internet. Uh, and you know, I think it was a good decision because it protected me from too much money to early on in life. Uh, I made some money on that, and I took that uh, to go through med school and then practice the physician for a few years. Now, that's interesting because you went to med school and then you did practice as a physician. But, you know, really, in, instead of I mean, what they say, you know, is that once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur, right? <laughs> but, but in your case, I mean, you, you, you actually went at it again, you know, with a, perhaps, you know, like the thought of, of, of going at it with building a business. But you end up landing at McKinsey. So what, were, what, what happened there for you not to go at it again and then all of a sudden, you know, work for somebody else? You know, it's interesting. What I had realized at some point is that I sold my first business far too cheap, you know, relative to uh, what, what a company uh, should have been worth. And I said, well, I want to do another startup, but I want to, at this point, uh, know enough about business to make the right decisions. And I felt I already had enough degrees, so I wanted to learn this very, very practically. And I ended up joining uh, McKinsey originally with the thought to just stay a couple of years, but it ended up being incredibly interesting. So I stayed, I stayed, I became a junior partner, and I did a lot of healthcare technology. And then someone looking back, I would say, that was actually quite helpful because I learned a lot, but I also developed a deep expertise and perspective on an industry uh, that allowed me to, to start Zocdoc you know, with the right uh, you know, initial starting point. Now, let's talk about, you know, this, you know, really quickly, because being at McKinsey, you know, and having that, uh, those consulting jobs, you know, it gives you also the visibility and the capability of, of grabbing a big problem and then, you know, kind of like putting it into smaller problems and then you're tackling one by one. So what kind of visibility did that give you into execution, into being effective at execution in resolving problems? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? So McKinsey, even before, you know, selecting ZocDoc was a big impact because I had a framework on what I wanted the company to be uh, that I was going to start. I wanted one that had a great mission. I wanted it uh, to have a large market. I wanted to have a large moat uh, so that you uh, can defend it. And I wanted it uh, to be based on a contrarian insight uh, so that we could um, ultimately have enough time to really dig out that moat. Uh, interestingly, when we first got started and, and first began to raise money, the McKinsey background was actually a bit of a hindrance for us. So uh, we we you know got started with the company, and then we went to Sandhill Road, like so many others before us, and we pitched and we pitched and we pitched, and we got very polite reception, uh, but uh, no uh, offers, no term sheets, and we didn't know why that was until. Uh, at some point, uh, a kind soul took us apart and, uh, and said, like, look, the idea is great. You look smart enough, but you're consultants. You know, consultants can get anything done. And we looked at, our, at each other and we both were wearing khakis and, and button-down shirts. And we knew what we needed to change. So we just uh, sort of walked into a gap, bought jeans and T-shirts uh, and, and continued our tour from there. And, uh, and then uh, the term sheet started coming in. I love it. Now, for the people that are uh, listening to really get it, you know, what what has, you know, the business model of Shotdog, how it has evolved and what is it today? How do you guys make money? So we started out as a SaaS business uh, where, you know, doctors would come uh, on the platform and uh, and pay us a monthly fee be found in this marketplace. And that business worked in, in, in a number of ways. Well, the patient was great. You know, the, the experience, uh, for the patient was if you pick up the phone and dial for doctors, 
You have to wait nearly a month till you can see one. But doctors have last minute cancellations, no-shows, reschedules, right? And like any other industry where there's perishable inventory, you know, there is marketplaces that match you, right? Whether it's flights or stays. And, and ZocDoc is that marketplace for healthcare. Now, we decided, you know, that doctors would pay us a flat monthly fee, but, you know, the obstacle we couldn't overcome is that some doctors would get lots of bookings, some of them tens of thousands a year, and some of them would get 10. And so whatever price you would pick uh, that you uh, charged everyone would be way too high uh, for some and, and a fraction of what uh, others should pay. And so you couldn't get that right. And we scaled SockDoc uh, for a long time with this inadequate business model, uh, you could say maybe nearly too long. Now, you know, on this, you know, it's 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 interesting too because, you know, it's um building marketplaces like that, you know, where you're getting like the doctor and the also the the I mean the the chicken and the egg, right? So the supply and the demand connecting both. How did you guys go about that? Because that's like building two companies at the same time. Yeah, it is it is very hard. And quite frankly, uh, we brute forced it. Yeah, we went from doctor to doctor to doctor and uh, walked in and pitched them on this idea when it was really uh, you know, questionable uh, you know, how much demand was really on the other side. But we, we started out with the doctors. Now, we did a number of things that I think helped us uh, make this successful. Um, the most important one is that we constrained it to a really small geographic area so that we could create density. And we ended up putting up a big map of Manhattan in one of our offices. And we would plant flag literally only in downtown, only with dentists. And we would mark the different insurances that these dentists accept to create uh, you know, critical mass and, and uh, you know, sufficient options for consumers uh, that would come uh, into, into uh, that specific area. And I think that's what set us apart from others that had tried to do the same thing uh, early on that we're signing up, you know, uh, a dentist in Boston, one in Las Vegas, and really uh, delivered value for uh, none of the users as a result. I think uh, that that's one of the things we did right. Now, we did wait a long time to rethink the subscription part of the model, which uh, ended up uh, being the unlock, you know, for Zocdoc as a business. And it's something that we started doing really uh, in uh, 2000. 16, 2017, uh, and, uh, and it's been uh, a step change on every single metric in the business. Now, in this regard, you know, when it comes to, um, to obviously, you know, this kind of business, you know, you, you need money, right? You need money and marketplaces, you know, they take money to have the um, networking effects, you know, going in the right direction and, and making sure that, uh, you know, the supply, you know, and the demand, you know, are matching and there's liquidity in the marketplace and all that good stuff, no? So how did you guys go about, you know, financing the company? How much capital, you know, first and foremost, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Yeah, so we've raised several hundred million dollars uh, in a number of equity rounds. But uh, interestingly, we raised our very first round uh, all the way back in 2008. And if you uh, remember these times, right, this is when the rest in peace memo was circulating. And so we have from day one been extremely prudent about how we spend our money and money we spend. We always look at uh, as a tax on our ingenuity to replace this with some uh, good idea. And I think that's uh, yeah, a very different experience from a lot of companies that 
uh, sort of grew up in a, in a time when money was plentiful. So we, I think we've been uh, extremely uh, capital efficient over time. And you know, because of our strategy of focus on uh, just a handful of markets early on, these markets actually sort of overcame the you know, critical mass and started generating cash to partially fund uh, you know, other parts of the expansion of other parts of the business. And, and that's been sort of a pattern that was very, very helpful for us as we had to go through the business model transition. And in this case, I mean, I mean, you were mentioning, you know, several hundred, you know, hundreds of millions, I mean, close to 400, you know, according to, um, to public sources. But my question here is, how has it been, you know, going from one financing round to the next, you know, for you guys? What, how, how have you seen, you know, to the expectations, you know, from investors maturing and, and, and also going, you know, the business, you know, from, from one cycle to the next? Yeah, I think, uh, again, it's it's important to think about what's the milestone that you want to deliver for the next financing. You should start thinking about this really before you have the prior financing closed so that you know uh, what you can promise and how you uh, position yourself. I think the biggest break in that streak was certainly having to go through the business model transition, right? That is something that we hadn't anticipated uh, was going to be necessary and, and it sort of was a break in the story arc, but it was also sort of increasing our working capital requirements uh, somewhat. So uh, that was a, was a difficult time to manage through. Um, but uh, you know, again, it is all about uh, you know all the expenses. You know, are always discretionary. Right? In, in times like this, we uh, tend to forget this or or think that the only thing we can do um, is is sort of uh, thinking about the team. But you know, I think this is my uh, two cents for for leaders in general. Rethink everything that you're doing, right? And when you approach business like that, and you have positive unit economics uh, on on everything you do, uh, all you do is uh, change the dial on how quickly you grow and uh, your complete control of your profitability. And we've been running ourselves like that, you know, for a long time now. I think that's what's really helped us uh, because we've always been in a position where we didn't need to raise money when we did. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. 
Now, in your case, you know, obviously, you know, they were saying a bunch of events, you know, that led to another. And then all of a sudden, you know, the board, you know, um, decides that it's time to hit reset, you know, and uh, because of, you know, certain aspects of the business and certain, you know, uh, things that, that you had in front of you guys. And then you had to step in, you know, because you started as the COO, you know, then you step up, you know, as the CEO. And then, you know, you're faced with a bunch of challenges, you know, including culture. You know, how did you go about, you know, that transition? What did that transition look like? Yeah, I think that that was one of the most, uh, you know, important and excruciating things uh, to do with Zocker. We had grown very aggressively with a very aggressive uh, outbound sales uh, culture. And if you go back and, and Google some of the uh, articles that were written about us uh, back then, you know, they didn't necessarily get everything right, but they also didn't get uh, everything wrong either. And so uh, there's something that needed to be fixed. I realized that in order for, to be the company you wanted to be, we need to transition from a sales-led culture to a product-led uh, culture. And so we uh, re-platformed uh, all of our core values, right? We, we went from a very uh, aggressive competitive uh, culture one that stresses collaboration uh, and a you know safe uh, psychologically safe working environment uh, and curiosity you know the the long term thinking uh, and innovation right and so uh, that was uh, that was work that required the entire leadership team uh, sort of to pull through like have these big anchor events uh, and and uh, make sure that all the folks that are on the bus are on board with that being our culture uh, go forward and and. Uh, I think Zocdoc is, uh, in that sense, unrecognizable today from what it was uh, seven, eight years ago. I mean, fixing culture is not easy, right? Because, uh, you know, culture really starts with the founders and and really transitioning that is is pretty difficult. Um, obviously, you know, this has been a work of, uh, of multiple years now. Uh, and um, I guess, you know, as part of, of this journey, you know, uh, what kind of, what, what would you say were like the three key things that you were keeping an eye out for, you know, when making sure that that transition, you know, like wouldn't break. So I think uh, culture was actually one thing that was that I had the most confidence in we'd be able to pull off because there were you know, a sufficient number of people that were really at ZocDoc that uh, were there for all the right reasons uh, that were very mission driven uh, and that would see through sort of a, a rough patch uh, with an eye on the long term uh, vision that, that we want to deliver on. I think the the financial part of the turnaround uh, was was much more uh, scary because uh, we needed to have uh, a model where we can charge uh, the doctors more closely related to the value that we're getting. Right in in the old model, the doctors that got ten thousand patients from us uh, a year were literally just paying cents per patient. That wasn't going to be a sustainable uh, business model for us going uh, forward. And in some instances, we had to go in. And charge these doctors a hundred times more than what they had uh, originally uh, been paying us. And you know, I get upset when Netflix increased their price by two dollars. You know, like leave alone uh, by a hundred x. And and so those were were a set of very very uh, challenging conversations to have. And it was made more challenging by the fact that when we talked to pricing experts about wanting to change our model, the first thing that came out of everyone's mouth was, "Well, whatever you do." don't charge your best customers more, which is obviously the exact opposite of what we had to do. Now, net, over half of the doctors on the platform were actually paying less as a result of the business model transition, but obviously 
uh, the, the squeaky uh, wheels were the ones that were paying more, sometimes even only moderately more. So that was a very uh, difficult part of the transition. The, the uh, third part, uh, which was uh, maybe the most daunting one uh, to begin with, was the fact that it required regulatory clarification. So I uh, spent a couple of years in DC talking uh, to regulators, talking uh, to uh, politicians, creating bipartisan consensus that Zocdoc is an important uh, piece of uh, healthcare infrastructure uh, that we need and want in this country that's actually helping everyone, the patient, the doctor, the health insurers, uh, and, and, and the you know, employers and, and, and funders of the system all benefit you know, from Zocdoc's existence and that can only be scaled under this new business model. And I'm, it's a point of pride for me that we were able to convince the regulator to clarify that Zocdoc and, and Zocdoc specifically has the right to operate the way we do today, uh, which is uh, charging doctor on a per booking basis. And at what point, you know, obviously, you know, a tough, um, a tough, trans tough transition, tough responsibility, you know, that you're faced with. At what point do you realize, hey, I think that we're we're turning a corner here. I think we're going to be all right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We were finished with this uh, business model transition uh, in December of 2019, and. We had a fantastic January uh, and a fantastic February of 2020, right? We saw the growth rates, we saw the unit econs, we realized that we could now start marketing to patients to, to make more patients use the service and we'd have you know, a, an attractive payback period on this. And then in March 2020, COVID happens, right? The CDC tells patients, well, don't go to the doctor if you can avoid it. That was obviously a tough time to have transitioned to a usage-based pricing model, our revenue you know, broke 60, 70, 80, 90% in some weeks. So it was a very, very difficult time. We had uh, board meetings uh, a couple times a week. The board was asking me to consider to, to lay off uh, you know, part of the uh, employee base to make sure that we match our expenses to our uh, rapidly vanishing uh, revenue. In the case, I said, no, we can bet on ourselves. We can add the things that consumers want now to the marketplace and make it resilient. And, and I uh, asked for and got eight weeks to put uh, telehealth on the platform, which you know, we had prior to the pandemic, but it was a rounding error, less than 1%. With, you know, and we, we started on this uh, in, in early April. By uh, late April, we had uh, telehealth live. By uh, you know, mid-May, we were the largest telehealth network in the country. And by June, we had uh, sort of our revenue uh, return and, and, and we were able to actually eke out some growth uh, in uh, 2020 overall, despite a really wipeout quarter in Q2. So uh, we ended up uh, being very much okay, but after surviving something as devastating as the, as the initial COVID wave, I knew that this business had the resiliency to really go all the way to the top and our execution in 21 and 22 and you know, in the beginning of 23 really points towards uh, this being a correctly uh, a sort of a correct assessment. Um, you know, we now see very healthy growth. We have seen the doctor side of the network actually change in quality dramatically. It used to be that we had uh, many, many people outbounding, calling doctors, asking them to join the network. Now doctors are coming to us. They fill in their information. Uh, on the web, they put their credit card in, on the web themselves, 
uh, and, and can really sign up without ever talking to a human being. And to give you a sort of a sense for uh, the scale of this, uh, in just 2022, we signed up more doctors than the first eight years of our existence combined. Wow. Now, now in this case, you know, for you guys too, I mean, there's a lot of employees. How many employees do you guys have today? A little bit over a thousand. Wow. And now, you know, obviously that's a lot of employees. You know, I wonder like for the people that are listening to, to get the, you know, a, si a little bit of a size, you know, like scope and size of the operation today of SockDoc. I mean, anything that you can share in terms of like users or doctors or anything like that? Yeah, so we, we have over 200 different specialties. We're in every major city. Uh, you know, we have roughly 50 million appointments available in every uh, given uh, month. Uh, and and you know, we deal with over uh, 12,000 different insurance plans. So it's a pretty comprehensive platform uh, at this point uh, that's growing uh, that's growing at a very rapid clip. And you know, we are sort of, I think, the default uh, marketplace uh, in healthcare at this point. Now it's amazing, like when you have the 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 flywheels, you know, and and the network effects, you know, going, you know, for for a marketplace like this. Little you have to do to really mess this thing up. I mean, it, it kind of like goes on its own, right? Well, it's actually uh, it's actually slightly different than many marketplaces, right? So in healthcare, is hyper local. People okay. uh, in New York won't even cross Central Park to go see a doctor. So you end up having to manage tens of thousand zip code specialty insurance specific micro markets. And it's something uh, that is that we've had to learn over the years that it's very, very complicated and, and uh, isn't uh, completely on autopilot. But, uh, you know, we're proud that we, uh, I think, are mastering this on behalf of our patients and that we're getting better at this uh, every day. And it's uh, obviously uh, no regret uh, you know, platform for a provider to join. So I think it's getting easier and easier to do this, even though it's a very, very hard thing to do well. Now, imagine if you know if you if you were to go to sleep tonight, Oliver, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Shockdoc is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, I think it's, it's easiest to think about uh, what sort of uh, the ideal future looks like when you think about how broken the present is, right? If you Think about what, what's the patient's experience today, right? When, when you start getting sick, you know, in your most, most vulnerable state, you go to an insurance directory that's largely incorrect. You, you start uh, dialing down uh, the list for doctors, you know, waiting on hold uh, for a long time to then you know, pay scheduling Tetris to get an appointment that's uh, weeks out into the future, you know, to then go in there, fill out, information that you've provided you know, many, many times before uh, to just then sit in a waiting room uh, and to be seen. And ultimately, then you wait some more, you get a surprise bill uh, that you never expected in the entire process. That is a really uniquely broken system that uh, we wouldn't accept in any other industries, right? Whether it's e-commerce or, uh, you know, stays or flights, you know, we always expect that there are marketplaces where you can choose between hundreds of transparent options with clear upfront pricing and where information travels uh, seamlessly between the different players that actually you know, provide uh, you with, with services, right? You don't need to uh, tell uh, your, your address to UPS and FedEx separately. Uh, that's all, that's all here gone. And I think 
ultimately we need to have a similar experience in healthcare where there's one place where you can compare uh, the different uh, treatments with their effectiveness where you see the prices upfront where you know that your clinical information travels with you and is going to be there uh, for the provider and i think uh, the the company that that will transform this complex and really uniquely broken healthcare system is going to be a unifier at its heart. And, and that's what uh, ZocDoc is, I think, uh, optimally positioned to deliver. I love it. Now, if I was to, obviously here we're looking you know, towards the future. If we had the opportunity of looking you know, towards the past, obviously with like a you know, big lens of reflection there and and by doing so, you know, let's say I, I put you in the situation of uh, putting you into a time machine and I'm able to bring you back in time. You know, maybe back in time to that moment where you were still in school and figuring out, you know, maybe like doing something of your own as an entrepreneur. If you had the opportunity of sitting down that younger Oliver and being able to give that younger Oliver a piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? I think there's a number of uh, things that, that are really important. And they are, you know, I think bespoke to the person because you want to make sure that you're surrounded uh, by ideas that are complementary to your own, right? Like you, you want to have that diversity uh, of capabilities and that diversity of thought early on. I think that that is, you know, probably the single most uh, uh, important advice. I think the other bit that uh, is um, is very clear is that, you know, making uh, important decisions quickly is, I think, the the core you know uh, capability and the core competitive advantage of an entrepreneur. And and sometimes uh, we we get stuck uh, in in sort of things that kind of work but don't work quite well enough. And and we've experienced that certainly at Zocdoc with sticking with our old subscription model for too long, uh, quite frankly. And I think that was a very instructive period for me to to say. No, when you see something is not working, then change it and change it radically to what you think is the best solution or what you need to do and accept the uh, obstacles that you need to overcome uh, to get there. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of other things that we learn about ourselves on the way and, and how we uh, manage ourselves with others. And, and the last thing, and this was advice that I got uh, from one of our board members, and I think it is uh, really, uh, really valuable advice. You know, every entrepreneur. I think has to be very confident in their own skills, right? Otherwise, why would you ever take the risk of doing something completely new? And it leads sometimes uh, to the inability to delegate. And, and one of my board members told me once, look, you may think that you can do everything 20% better uh, than your team members, and maybe you can, but you cannot do all of their jobs 20% better. So you need to be able to accept uh, the way that other people do things, and you need to be able uh, to delegate jobs uh, completely and entirely uh, to others. And I think uh, that's something that really opened my eyes and, and changed the way uh, that I uh, manage others and manage myself. And it's been uh, a key unlock to becoming an effective CEO of a larger organization. Amazing. Well, Oliver, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Just send me an email. It's, it's easy. It's oliver at zocdoc.com or find me on LinkedIn. Um, and, you know, I uh, I try to respond as quickly as I can. I can't promise I'm always going to be very, very fast. But, uh, you know, 
this is a, a super interesting journey. I think it's uh, good to connect with me, but it's even more important to connect with yourself and and, and find out uh, what it is that you uniquely bring uh, to the table on this entrepreneurial journey and, and find the right uh, people and the right advice to complement you. Uh, and it's, a, it's it, as hard as it may be at times, it's a wonderful uh, and very, very rewarding thing to do. Uh, and, and I congratulate them for going down that path. Amazing. Well, Oliver, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much. Good to be here. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.